Well, we're approaching the, the midway mark now of the book of Judges, and so the text before us today uh, could, to some degree, be seen as somewhat of a potential reset in the life of Israel. So are they going to choose now to follow God? So if you've been with us the past couple of weeks, chapter 9 ends uh, with Israel's leader being killed, and now this, this sense that Israel has no leader, and they're in conflict with one another. Judges 10 opens up, and so though the first five verses of chapter 10 weren't read this morning, because it's not going to be our our focus for today, but the first five verses of chapter 10 opens with this this brief telling of two judges who arose after the, the previous judge, Abimelech, was killed. Now, pretty much all it says about these two judges is that they rose up and that they saved Israel. No enemy is mentioned, no threat is mentioned, so the question is, saved them from what? Well, if you're reading through the end of chapter 9, it's going to be implied then that Israel needed saving from themselves. They were tearing each other apart. And and so these two judges raise up, and, and really all it says is that for about 45 years between the two of them, there was a sense of stability and peace in the land again. And that leads us then to our text this morning that David began reading, verse 6, where, where now is, okay, is there going to be a reset? There's peace, there's stability. Are they going to continue to follow after God? And we heard verse 6 read, the people of Israel again did what was evil. Now, this past week as I was reading through this, this text, I got hung up on the word again. And the people of Israel again <laughs> Now, if I'm being honest with you, I got annoyed. I got annoyed. I got annoyed with Israel. What is their problem? Like, ju- like, what's their deal? Stop doing this. Knock it off and just do right. That, that was going through my mind, that annoyance, for maybe 20 seconds. 20 seconds before the Holy Spirit slapped me upside the head and said, now of course this is going to be a a, a paraphrase of the Holy Spirit's conviction of my heart through reading God's word, but but I heard him say to my heart through reading God's word, that's you, dummy. That's you. Before you start casting stones, you better check your own heart and examine how many times have you continually wandered and again and again and again pursued the idols of this world rather than God. Can anyone else please relate with me to that? All right? If, if the story of our lives were written down on paper, exposed for the whole world to see and to read, would people get annoyed with us and think the same thing that I arrogantly was thinking while reading of the life of Israel during this period? All right? If our life was written down on paper, would people say, What is their problem? What is their deal? Has God not shown them over and over and over again that he's with them? Why do they keep turning? Why are they doing what they're doing? This moment of personal conviction caused me to to pause for a moment and write down this question. It's going to be the question that we're going to work through this morning from the text. And maybe it's a question that we can all relate to. I wrote this down. It says, why does my heart feel the pull to forsake the one true God, the creator of all that there is, and instead serve created things which provide and show they provide no lasting meaning or hope. Why do I do this? Why do this over and over and over again? And so this morning, I want to I identify the problem of our hearts. Now, this, this isn't just a nation of Israel problem. This is a human being problem. 
So why do we again and again turn from God to worship the created things rather than the creator? But also from the text this morning briefly, we're going to see what's in our response. What's the solution? How do we battle this constant pulling, this tugging to forsake the God that we love? And we're going to see all of that in Judges 10 today. And, and what is seen even more clearly, I believe, in the text before us this morning, more than even the idolatrous heart of Israel, is the saving grace of a good and faithful and patient and loving God. Because God is the only one who can save us, because God is the only one who can deliver us from evil, we must put away all other idols which only bring about our enslavement and our destruction. Now, we're going to move quickly through this as quickly as I can today. One, because of the time. I, I, I'm aware of the time, okay? And, and I knew that. I knew we were going to spend some time this morning with Sanctity of Life Sunday, and that was important for us to do. But secondly, we're going to move quickly through this because the theme that we're addressing today is, is a theme that we've already addressed throughout Judges, and it's going to be one that continually pops up throughout the rest of the book of Judges. So we're going to keep coming back to this over and over again. For this morning, though, um, <laughs> I know everything I'm saying. We're going to move quickly, and then I'm going to say we've got four points to work through. Uh, so we do. Four points to work through, two of which, though, are going to be these tough conversations that we've got to have with our own hearts. And then two points which are going to call us to grace-driven, grace-fueled heart change. So let's, let's get moving. Two tough conversations that we've got to have. Tough conversation number one is that we've got to expose our heart's true love. We're going to have to have a conversation of exposing our heart's true love. Now, look at the first few verses again. Israel, again, does evil in the sight of the Lord. So, so how? Well, it explains it. They, they serve the Baals. They serve the Ashtaroth. These are two Canaanite gods and goddesses. But it goes on to say, it's like this laundry list of who's who of false gods that they've chased after, gods of Syria and Sidon and Moab and the Ammonites, the Philistines. Basically, what's taking place here in the nation of Israel is that whatever pagan nation was around them, they were asking them as they were integrating into these pagan nations, hey, what gods are you worshiping? Okay, we'll join in with you too. Is basically what was taking place in their, in their lives. It was almost, though, as if there was this intentionality in, in worshiping any other god but the one true God. And, and why do we struggle so often, though, with the same problem? Why is it so easy to fill up our lives, surround our hearts with, with the idols that surround us in our culture? And there's just as many. This God of wealth and power and sex and fame and the God of materialism and comfort and control, the fear of others that God controls us so often, the God of prosperity, of our reputation, of acceptance of others. The list is constantly being added to. Why is it so easy for us to worship at the altar of these idols instead of under the, the good reign and rule of God? It's because our heart's true love is self. We got to expose our heart's true love apart from the grace of God. Our true love is self. We need to come face to face with that reality. That, that what is so often uppermost in our thoughts and in our affections is us. It's me. So, and, and the worship of, of the idols of our culture, really, when you think about it, is just this pursuit of the love of self. So, so why? Think through this. Why do we pursue idols? Well, it's because idolatry 
puts us at the center of the universe. So our desires, what we really want, is then what we pursue through that idol. Idolatry doesn't call us to change anything about who we are, does it? When you think about it, and if it, if it begins to move that way, we just move to another idol. So idolatry is not calling us to change. It's not calling us to repent. There's no repentance. It's, it's just affirmation of what we actually really want. Um, idolatry puts us in control, or at least it affirms the illusion of control. So we do what we want to do. Idolatry doesn't call us to really sacrifice anything that we don't really want to. Uh, idolatry, think about this, idolatry doesn't recognize our creatureliness. So, so if we're just worshiping at the altar of something else that's been created, basically all we're doing is just affirming ourselves. We're good in and of who we are. There's no accountability. There's no submission. We don't, but when we submit to a holy God, we're recognizing in that moment as, as him as creator and us as creation, all of a sudden there's accountability. We don't want that. We don't want accountability. Idolatry, I read this earlier this week from another author. He said idolatry is easier than faith. Think about that. Idolatry is easier than faith. See, faith calls us to, to trust in God and not in ourselves. Idolatry says, here's the thing you, you really want. It's right in front of you. Just go and take it. It's, it's easier than stepping out in faith and trusting in a God that we, that we, that we see or cannot see. Right? These, are, these are tough conversations that we need to have with ourselves. We need to expose our hearts true love. It was author and biblical counselor Paul Tripp who has said, you, you do what you do because you want what you want. Love that. You do what you do because you want what you want. He further goes on to say, whatever desire rules your heart will control your words and your behaviors. See, Israel here wanted the immediate gratification that they thought would come from the worship of these many gods. They, they did what they did because they wanted what they wanted, and they wanted no accountability. The same is true for you and for me. So, so the question then here is, is, why do we need to come to terms with this reality that our true love of self, apart from God's intervening grace, is, is ourselves? Why do we need to, to realize that, recognize that, bring that to the forefront of our lives? What's well, because one of the biggest lies that we often will believe is that we don't see ourselves that way. That, that's not true of us. And when we don't recognize that this is our default mode, our default heart inclination, we live deceived lives not on guard against this constant temptation to exalt self. In, in high school or college, anybody in here ever take like a, a speech class? It's one of the most uh, terrifying classes that, that most students have. They, they, there's a, a big fear of public speaking. And, and so in a speech class, oftentimes you have to get up in front of the class and you have to deliver a speech. And then you're evaluated on how you, uh, how you speak and, and what you do. And, and oftentimes, I remember in my speech classes, uh, I would get the feedback from the class and from the, the teacher, the professor, on things that I'm doing while I'm speaking, different mannerisms that I have. That I, even, I wasn't even realizing that I was doing them. 
So for some people, when there's nervousness, they, they kind of just zone out. They don't know what they're doing. And so some people kind of fidget with, with things or they're in their pockets or they say the word um 500 times in five minutes or, or, the, or some people sway back and forth. It's, it's a way that they're kind of dealing with their anxiety and their nervousness, but they're unaware that they're even doing it. But the people that are watching it are very distracted by all those things. And so what, what the feedback often is in that class is, hey, you, you're doing this. You're doing these things. And the person's usually like, I, I had no idea I was doing that. But the next time that person gets up to give a speech, now they're aware of these things. They're aware of, oh, oh I'm fidgeting again. All of a sudden, I'm, I recognize I'm starting to sway. Oh, I'm saying the word um a lot more. All of a sudden, these things are coming to the forefront. You're, you're recognizing them for what they are so that you can make the correction. It's kind of what I'm thinking of here. We we need to bring these things to the forefront, into the light. We need to expose our heart's true love because the more that we're aware of this sinful inclination of our heart, the more we can battle it when we feel our hearts beginning to be pulled away from God to exalt self. So that's a tough conversation that we've got to have, expose our heart's true love. But there's a second conversation that we need to have from the text, and that is that we need to expose our manipulative tendencies. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. It says that the people of Israel, they cried out to the Lord saying, we've sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. Now we might think here, great, they're repenting, but they're recognizing their sin. But, but not so fast. Something's happening here. This is manipulation, and we know it's manipulation on the part of Israel because of how God responds in the following verses. Look at what God says to them in response to their, their so-called confession in verses 13 and 14. He says, well, you've forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the other gods, the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. What's going on here? Now, because God sees the heart, he sees right through them. This, this was not repentance in verse 10. In fact, they were treating God like one of the other false gods that they were worshiping. And it's why God looks at them and says to them, I'm, I'm not going to save you. I'm not going to save you. Go try one of the other gods that you've compiled in, in, in the nation of Israel and see what they can do it. Right? They're, they're using, Israel here is using these religious rituals. They're using religious language to try and sound pious, but they're also trying to use that language to manipulate God into fixing their problems. But, but they, they right here, they don't want him. They don't want him. They just want the benefits of God. They think if we, <clears throat> if we say the right things, if we observe the right rituals, then God will help us. He has to. We're going through the motions of what he's told us to do. This was nothing more really than a form of works-based righteousness. Parents in here recognize this all the time with our kids. All of us understand this to some degree because we were all children at one point. Um, My kids from time to time will snipe at each other. Uh, My kids from time to time will say unkind things toward one another. They will harm one another. They will treat one another um, uh, in in not an appropriate way. And so when we as parents recognize that and see that, we go to them. We try to fix this and say, listen, you need to go apologize. You need to go make this right. Like what you said hurt her. What you said hurt him. You need to go make things right. And so what have we often seen in the lives of our kids? 
all right, sorry, sorry, all right, you good, we good, right? Like, and, and as parents, we don't sit and observe that and say, oh, my heart is warmed. My heart is so warmed with your love and your affection that you have. I'm so grateful for this. Right? We, we, we see as parents right through that. But, but what's happened? Like on paper, they did what we asked them to do. They, they went. They said, sorry. They said, will you forgive me? They, they went through the actions of this. But as parents, we can see right through that. Like, no, no you, you don't mean this. Like, we need to walk through, like, the, the effects of what you're doing and how it harms another person. You need to feel the weight of this so that your, your apology is actually a, a, a response to a heart that actually means that. See, as parents, we recognize that in our, in our kids, and this is exactly what Israel was doing here in verse 10. They're, they're saying, we, God, we said the right words. We went through the correct motions. We said we sinned. Why are you still mad at us? We do the same thing all the time. How often do we rest in our own religious rituals and observances and good deeds to make us feel accepted before God, to make us feel better than, than others? How often do we look to our work ethic and our family and our right theology and our intellect and our love of others, all the good things that we do that, that we're giving, we say to God and say, why are you ticked at me? I'm doing all these things rather than resting in faith in the finished work of Christ. We so often ourselves will go through these manipulative tendencies and think, because I'm doing X, Y, and Z, I'm good. God sees right through us. What Scripture constantly calls us to? To turn from sin. To feel the, the weight of what our sin does, not only to us, but how we've sinned against a holy God. To, to put it away, to turn in faith to Christ. We, so often we look inwardly to what we can or have done and say, God, we should be good, right? We, we try to manipulate him. Those areas need to be exposed as well, brought into the light so that we can move toward God with a heart that wants him, that wants him and him alone. These are two tough conversations that we need to have that God was having with Israel right here. But as we, as we close out the text, we also need to see two areas of, of grace-driven heart change that, that needs to occur so that we might put to death the idols that our hearts pursue. And so two, two grace-driven heart changes that need to take place with us is, is that we need to behold God's salvation. Behold God's salvation. Notice what God says to Israel after they attempt to manipulate him through their, their, their actions, their words. Look at what God says in verses 11 and 12. He, he says, Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites, and from the Philistines. And he goes on, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. What's God doing here? Is he's drawing, drawing their hearts, drawing their minds to his grace, his deliverance, his character, his salvation. St. Israel, you've looked constantly to the surrounding gods of these pagan nations, and what has it gotten you every single time. Nothing but distress and oppression and slavery. If you look back to verses 8 and 9, as they're pursuing the gods of the surrounding nations, what does it once again result in? It says they were crushed and oppressed. 
In fact, it says at the end of verse 9, they were severely distressed. That's all it would continually bring them as they're pursuing these pagan nations, these false gods. The very nations of these gods that they served were the very nations who would then turn around and oppress them. Yet Israel would just continually bow at the altar of these gods, thinking that maybe stronger worship, maybe stronger serving of these idols would save them from the enslavement that they were experiencing at the very hand of these gods and pagan nations. And again, we can look at what they're doing and just think, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? What are you doing? Stop chasing after these idols. But I love how Tim Keller addresses this these specific verses in his commentary on Judges. He says it's easy to see the futility in this in Israel from our vantage point of a different era and different culture. But I love this. He says human hearts have not changed. They still assure us that when an idol leads to slavery, what we need is more of that idol. If someone seeks, he says, gives an example, if someone seeks their, their value and purpose in a relationship, so for example, sacrificing everything to a marriage which then fails. It seems very natural to think, well, I just need to find another relationship. I need a better spouse. We see our problem, he says, not as worshiping an idol, but not worshiping an idol enough. It's exactly what what Israel continually found themselves doing. Rather than turning from the idol, maybe we just need another one. We need another one. If that one's not working out, let me worship harder. And it just would result further and further in their oppression and their distress. And so what's God doing here is this tough but loving pursuit of Israel to to draw their hearts to his salvation, to look beyond that to his faithfulness, his love, his care and compassion. What have these idols gotten you? And now what have I given you? To turn from idolatry, we need to behold God's salvation. As we, as we think upon this, how has he cared for you? How has he delivered you? How has he saved you? How has he proven himself faithful to you? Uh, friend, if you, if you have not yet believed and turned from your sin, if you are continually looking and turning to the things of this world, to turning and looking to the, even just religious observances and thinking that should be enough, if you're sitting here thinking, well, I'm here today, doesn't God want me in a church? Or I'm here, isn't that enough? The, the plea from Scripture, the plea to you this morning is no, it is insufficient. There's no amount of good works that can cause you to be accepted and saved. But it's only through faith in the finished work of Christ and his life, death, resurrection. That's where our gaze needs to be. That's where our heart needs to be looking at continually and constantly. We look to him and we say, apart from you, we have nothing. We need to behold God's salvation and see the the insufficiency of every other created thing. Lastly, lastly then, we need to desire God above all else. See, God delivers tough words to Israel. But these tough words of grace, they do awaken their hearts. Because in the last couple of verses of our text this morning, there is a shifting that takes place. Look at verses 15 and 16. It says, the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and they served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. There was a change here. But what changed? What changed was now they wanted God's presence. They wanted God's presence regardless of what the consequences would be from their sinful actions. 
That's the shift that's taking place in their hearts. That's what God desires, that we want him and nothing else. See, before, in verse 10, Israel, they wanted the benefits of God's salvation and deliverance, but they didn't want God. Just just fix our problem and then get away from us so we can continue to do what we want. And we'll go through these motions of religious observance to appease you, but now, thank you, now please scurry away. But, but here, they're saying, God, deliver us, but but, 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 but what we need is your presence. Before they were saying, God, deliver us, but don't call us to submit. And here they're saying, listen, even if you don't deliver us, we still want you. Even if you don't, we still want you, yet we're still appealing to your mercy. See, and, and we see this change then manifests itself in the removal of the idols from among them. That's repentance. Do you desire God above all else? And what in your life is revealing this truth? It's easy to, to say, yes, I desire God above all else. But Israel was saying that in verse 10, but they want to keep their idols. What in your life is revealing that, no, I want God above all else? What have we put away so that we say, no, he is enough? This is where our mind and heart should be searching and asking of God through the power of the Spirit. What do I need to put away? Where do I need to repent? What areas of my life are revealing that I may say the right things, but I am not fully dependent upon the grace and the mercy of God. Are you desperate for him? Do you believe that, that, that I can't live one second without his presence? Like you remove God from, from my presence for one second, I come undone. That's what God is after in us. As we close today, I want to challenge us to do something this week. And if you're not typically a note taker, uh, that's okay. But maybe just for these last few moments, maybe become one, okay? Uh, or, or we'll have these on the screens. You can grab your phones and maybe even just snap a picture. But I'm, I'm going to challenge us to do something this week. It's something that I've done this past week, and it was difficult. But, man, was it life-giving at the same time. At some point this week, I, I want you to, to sit down. I want you to get a piece of paper and get a pen and get a loan I want you to sit down and I want, to, I want you to write down the, the, this, this question, but then write down your response to the, these questions. I've got, I've got eight of them. Four, and, and it's like four and four. They kind of overlap. You'll see what I mean. But the first question I want you to write down this week and then answer is, what are the common idols that your heart chases after? So what are the common idols that your heart chases after? So not the common idols that most people chase after. What are you chasing after? What, what's... What, what is common in your life? Write them down. It's so important, I think, that we write them down because then you're coming face-to-face with them. You're, you're seeing them on paper and like, man, I'm, I'm chasing after this. After you, after you spend time on that, write down this question and answer it. How, how have any of these idols made sense of my life? How have they given me the hope and meaning that I'm so desperate for? Now, you're going to really struggle to, to actually write a response to that question. And really what's going to happen is that that section's going to be blank. You're going to write that and say, they haven't. They have not given me the full meaning and hope and life that I am so desperate for. But, but still, I want you to see the emptiness that comes from you trying to answer that question. Question number three is, then answer this, how have these idols failed me? And how have they not lived up to their promises? So how have these idols that I'm, I'm constantly pursuing 
How have they failed me over and over and over again? How, what promises have they made and how have they always not kept their promises? And then the fourth question that goes in this little section is, why do I keep chasing after them? Write that down. So why do I keep going after them over and over and over again? And so here's the last section of four questions, and you'll see how they overlap with the first four. So now I want you to sit down after you've gone through that and write down this question. What are the characteristics and attributes of God that stir my affections for him? So, so again, I think just as important as it is to come face to face with the idols that our hearts constantly chase after, it's important, I think, for us as well to come face to face with the character, the, the attributes of, of a holy God that just stir us to worship, to see them on, on paper and to just, just worship and praise him for who he is. And then ask this question, how has God made sense of my life? How has he given me the hope and meaning that I'm so desperate for? And so come face to face with that question and write that down. I don't care how long you have to fill that paper up, but just write and say, here's how he's made sense of my life. Here's how he's given me the hope and meaning I am so desperate for. So then the next question will lead you to, has God ever failed me? Or how has he fulfilled his promises? How has he fulfilled his promises? So the last question then to, to deal with and to come face to face with might be the key to all of it. But what keeps me from wholeheartedly chasing after him? So what is it? What, what's the obstacle of, for you saying all in? Every, like what, what is it? Is, it? is it fear of others? Is it fear of loss of comfort or control? Is it, is it wanting to hold on to the things that you have and, and fearful that he's going to ask me to, to give them up? What, what, what is it that keeps you from maybe having a toe in, a foot in? I'm, I'm in here as long as I can control this. But over here, I, I just don't want to let go of these things. What is it that keeps you from wholeheartedly chasing after him? And I say this is such an important question to answer. It's because whatever that is, whatever you write, that, write down on that paper, that's the idol. That's the idol. That's what you got to target in on, zero in on with the gospel. That's what we confess that's what you repent of. That's what you draw community in and say, this has a stranglehold on me. And, and I need you as brothers and sisters to, to fight with me, to war with me, because this is keeping me from fully chasing after a holy God. I want to challenge you as a church to think through those. If you didn't, I know I tried to go through them slow, but if you didn't get them, I've got them here. You can come talk to me afterwards this morning. But these are just aspects of, okay, how do we pursue him? How do we put away that which is wicked, to pursue that which is life-giving. God, help us. Let's pray.